Bible, let's go to 2 Corinthians, and we're going to continue our trial series, and we're going to talk about today, comforted to be a comforter, and we are glad that you're here, we're glad to have Nicole, I want to call you Adams, but uh, I did your wedding, I should know your name, right, Kincaid with us, and uh, this is David's, uh, one of his daughters, and uh, her and Eric are in Aiken, South Carolina now, and uh, Eric's pastoring there, and she's in this week, so pray for them, your first pastorate is always an adventure. Being a pastor's wife is always an adventure, right? All right. Um, let me ask you a question. I want, I want to start with this. Have you ever been in a situation, uh, and, and I know the answer, but I just want us to admit it up front, okay? you ever been in a situation where you just totally felt like giving up? Just felt like, I cannot take this anymore. I cannot go on. I cannot deal with this. I quit. You ever come to a place? You may not want to answer this one out loud, but you ever come to a place like, man, I don't even want to live anymore. I mean, I just can't. This just hurts so much that I just really cannot deal with this. Well, I got to tell you, the, the passage that we're going to focus on today encourages me in a way because part of what we're going to see is the Apostle Paul basically came to this place in his life. And it makes me feel better when I feel like throwing my hands up and giving up and when I feel like I can't take any more of this. It makes me feel better in a way to know that someone as strong as he was came to a place like that. Now, I have to admit, it took him a whole lot more to get there than it would take me to get there. But still, I mean, look at what he says here. In, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting verse 8, he says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. I mean, do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, uh, you know, our burden is beyond measure. We can't even quantify it. It was so bad. It's beyond our strength. We couldn't handle it. I just wanted to quit. I despaired of life. I didn't see any way out of this. Just couldn't handle this anymore. He says, yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. So he was going through something terrible. Of course, he went through a lot of really bad things. He lists some of those in different places. I mean, he was basically left for dead on multiple occasions. He, he was beaten several times. He was shipwrecked. I mean, he, was, he just suffered greatly time and time again uh, for the cause uh, of Jesus Christ. But, you know, in this particular case, he's just like, man, I just couldn't take this anymore. And let me just point out one other thing. This isn't really what we're going to focus on. We're mainly going to focus on verses 3 through 7. But one other thing I want you to notice, you know, a few weeks ago we looked in James chapter 1 and we talked about, you know, why does God let us go through trials? And, you know, we talked about how his, his purpose is to mature us and, and to strengthen us. And we talked about how to handle our, tri- our, our trials. Well, here's something we could add to that. When you look at verse 9, he says this was going on so that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. 
so you understand what he's saying? He's saying sometimes God lets us go through stuff so that we will stop trusting in ourselves. And he, he kind of just brings us to the place where we don't have a whole lot of other choice but to, to trust in him. So that would say to me that the more readily and the more easily that we trust the Lord, that sometimes at least we may avoid some trials in our life, at least the trials that come to us because we're trusting ourselves instead of trusting in him. So that's not the main point of what we're talking about, but I just want to point that out and file that away and think about that because I think that could be useful sometimes in you know when you're facing a difficulty. But what we're going to talk about, and here, here's the main idea. If you go ahead and just kind of skip ahead and put this on the screen, this is the main idea. This is what we're going to see, I think, in, in, in this scripture. So if you fall asleep in the next little bit, let's get at least this one sentence and get it in our minds because this is the message in a nutshell. We have a Father who comforts us in our trials so that we then can be a comfort to other people. That's what we're going to read in these verses in just a minute, that we have a Father who comforts us in our trials so that we then can turn around and be a comfort to other people. Let's read this together one time. Ready? We have a Father who comforts us in our trials so that we can then comfort others. Now, let's see where that comes from in the Scripture. 2 Corinthians 1, starting verse 3. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And blessed is the Greek word that we get our English word eulogy from. You know what a eulogy is? You know, you go to a funeral, you go to a memorial service, and uh, everybody becomes a saint, right? People say all kinds of good things about them. And, And the word eulogy literally means to say a good word. It's from the Greek word eulogia, and it's the prefix E-U, which means good, and then the, the second part is the form of the word logos, which means word. So it literally means to say a good word. So when we bless God, we say good things about him because of the good things that he's done for us. So it's basically talking about praising God. So when if you read the Bible and this phrase in the New Testament at least three times, something about blessing God... You ever heard somebody say, somebody say, uh, Rusty and I have a, have a friend that's his, remember Billy Davis? They always say, well, bless God. Well, what, what it means is, uh, you know, really to praise God, to say something good uh, about God. You know, we can't really give God anything because he owns everything, but God gives good things to us. And then when we praise him, we say good things about him in, in, in return. That's what this is talking about. So blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Isn't that a beautiful description of God? And it says, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. 
or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. So he's saying, in part, the reason he's going through this stuff is so he could be a help uh, to them. He says, our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. Then let's read verse 11. We read verses 8 through 10 before, but let's read verse 11 to complete this section. He says, you also helping together in prayer for us. That thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. So the main idea, we have a father who comforts us in our trials so that we then can be a comfort to other people. Now, what I want to do in the message is basically just break down uh, the two parts of that statement and help us try to understand, help us apply that to our lives. So let's start by looking at the at the first side of that coin, so to speak, is that we have a father who comforts us in our trials. And that's a great truth. Really, if you stop and think about it, that we don't have a God who's some kind of detached deity, uncaring, aloof, unconcerned about us. But we have a God who says that he's our father and he loves us and he cares about us. He's concerned for us and the things that are going on in our lives. So let's kind of I want us to look at four aspects uh, of this particular truth. And, and the first one is this, verse three, the person who comforts us. Now, now notice the three different phrases he uses here to describe God. He says, he's the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the father of mercies and he's the God of all comfort. Now, he's the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, you know, how does that apply? What does that have to do with this? Well, you know, the Bible teaches us there's one God, three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're distinct, but they're equal. But even though they're equal, there's functional subordination there, meaning that when Jesus or when God the Son came into the world as Jesus Christ, that he submitted himself. He, he made himself lower than the Father when he made himself a human being, and, and he came to do the will of the Father. But the reason that Jesus came was to bring us back to God so that we could know God as our Father so that we could have a relationship with him. See, here's one of the things that people misunderstand about the Bible. The Bible does not teach that God is everybody's Father. God is everyone's creator. He's our creator in our natural birth. He becomes our father in our spiritual birth when we're born again. And that happens through Jesus Christ. But here's the good news. The Bible says that in Christ we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in him. And it says that we're joint heirs with Jesus Christ. That means if we know Christ, if we have been saved, so to speak, if we've repented of our sins, if we personally trusted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that means when we stand before God, we have been adopted into his family. And and that Jesus is our brother. God is our father. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And then when God looks at us, he looks at us like he does Jesus because we're in Christ and Christ is in us. And that means that what God has has 
given Jesus, he's also given to us. We share in that same inheritance. You see, when he calls him here the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord means that he's God. Jesus means that he's Savior. Christ means that he's Messiah. It's using the full redemptive name of the Son of God that Jesus is our Lord. He's our Savior. He's our Messiah who came to redeem us from sin and and to bring us into a relationship with God where we know God as our Heavenly Father. And so this only takes place through Jesus. And so as you read the scripture and as you listen to this message, the, the first issue that you need to settle is God really my father through Jesus Christ? Because if he's not, these promises don't apply. God doesn't promise comfort to those that he doesn't have a relationship with. He promises judgment. The Bible says there's no peace for the wicked and, and the wicked there, that, it doesn't mean that you've done this, that, or the other. It just means you're still in your sins because God has not forgiven you. And that's where we all are apart from Jesus Christ. And so, you know, the good news is, is that God loves us. He wants to be our father. He wants to bless us. He wants to comfort us. He wants to help us. But if we reject Jesus, his holy nature requires him to uphold his law and to punish our sin. So it's always a good news, bad news kind of scenario. But the good news is God wants to be our father. And, And look at how he describes himself. He describes himself as the father of mercies. The father of mercies. The Bible says he's slow to anger, full of grace, full of mercy, abundant in loving kindness. That's good news. The psalmist talked about how he came into God's court, into God's presence, in the multitude of his mercy. I love that phrase. Why do I love that phrase? Because I need a multitude of mercy because I've committed a multitude of sin. And the same thing is true of each and every one of us. God is merciful, and if God wasn't merciful, we wouldn't stand a chance. You said mercy is undeserved. Mercy is the opposite of what we deserve. We deserve judgment. God withholds that judgment. He gives us his mercy. But not only is he the father of mercies, he's the God of all comfort. That's his heart. To come alongside of us, that's uh, uh, really literally what the word comfort means. To come alongside of us, to be there with us, to be there for us, to strengthen us, to help us, to walk with us through the difficulties that we're going through. That's who he wants to be in our lives. And, you know, it just kind of makes me think about what Jesus talked about when he talked about the faith of a little child. You know, it's bad to be childish. It's good to be childlike in a, in a spiritual sense. And really, one of the things I, I think that God wants us to do is to learn to come to him as a child coming to his or her father. That can be hard for us. I think especially for men because it requires humility. It requires admitting a need. It requires acknowledging that we can't figure everything out, that we can't fix everything, that we can't handle everything on our own. 
But once again, God is not some remote, detached deity just out there somewhere. The Bible says he's near to every one of us. And, you know, as as I think about God being our Father, I mean, there's no perfect way to illustrate that or or for us to comprehend that. And I understand, you know, we start talking about Father. For some people, that's a a positive thing. For other people, that's a difficult thing. And and I know it's true you can kind of tend to view God through your Father, but He doesn't want us really ultimately to do that. He wants us to see who He's revealed Himself to be in Scripture and come to Him based on that truth. And, you know, what I think about is I, I think about my kids, And I think about especially when they were little. And, you know, when your kids are little and they get scared or or, or they fall and they get hurt, usually they come to you doing one of these kind of things, right? Uh, They want you to pick them up, comfort them, hold them, make them feel better. And, and, you know, for any kind of parent at all, we want to do that, right? And it makes us feel good, right? Usually, Right, maybe sometimes if there's blood involved, we say go see your mom or, or something like that. But 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 usually uh, that that's what we want to do, and, and you know, and sometimes you you think, and it just it'd be like silly stuff. Um, that I mean, my kids used to be like really afraid of dogs. And there'd be some dog that'd be about this big and, you know, Lily's uh, jumping up on my head and choking me and that kind of thing. But, you know, I, I'm there for her. And really, a lot of the stuff we get all freaked out about have to be seem pretty silly to a God who really has it all in his hands. But he's still there for us. And he wants us to come to him and, and, and to trust him and to hold on to him and let him be there for us. Let him comfort us. Let him encourage us because he does love us, because he does care about us. And, and he wants to walk with us through things. So... That's the person who comforts us. The second thing is the promise of his comfort. Look at what he says at the beginning of verse 4. Who comforts us in all our tribulation. Now, there's a promise there. But the third aspect of this I want us to think about are, are the parameters of his comfort. And, and you know what a parameter is? It's like a limit. It's, it's an outline. It's like, uh, you know, within this box, so to speak, this is how something works, outside of it, it's a different story. And I say that to say this, there's two kinds of promises in the Bible, we've talked about this before, you know what they are? Okay, conditional, somebody said it, I think, somebody's whispering, conditional and unconditional, right? And and a conditional promise, well, an unconditional promise is... God's just going to do it, this is the way it is, not relative to anything we do. Like Jesus said, I'm going to come back. There's nothing we can do to alter that. We can't speed it up, we can't slow it down, we can't change it. He says nobody knows the day or the hour, it's appointed, it's going to happen. Uh, You know, that's one example. There's a lot of examples of those kind of promises in the Bible. But there are also conditional promises in the Bible. One example would be Romans 10, 13. It says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. God's promise is salvation. But it's not just automatically bestowed on everybody. It's conditioned upon us calling on his name in faith. 
That's a conditional promise. Another conditional promise, Matthew 6, 33. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these other things will be added unto you. The promise is God is going to meet our needs. He's going to take care of us. He's going to provide the basic necessities of life. The condition is seek my kingdom first. Put me first in your life. That's a conditional promise. I believe that this promise here is also a conditional promise, meaning that when he says he comforts us in all our tribulation, the key is understanding, well, what is he talking about when he talks about tribulation? And what really what tribulation really means is persecution or suffering for the name of Christ. I think Paul amplifies this in, the, in verse 5. He says, For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. In other words, if we're suffering for the name of Jesus Christ, God promises to comfort us. I believe if God is putting us through a trial to mature us in Christ, God promises to be there and comfort us. But, and I want us to understand this because I think sometimes people get confused about this. If we're suffering because of our own sin, God doesn't promise comfort until something happens. What God promises is discipline. Remember what the Bible says, Hebrews chapter 12, and in other places, it says those that God loves, he disciplines. In other words, if we sin, God's going to discipline us. When we repent, that's when God is going to comfort us. And the reason I think it's important to to point that out, because I'm not trying to diminish this promise in any way. I'm just trying to get us to understand it accurately. My point is, God is a Father who comforts us. But what I see sometimes as a pastor is is people are are like, and you know, I'm praying and, and, and I'm asking God to be with me, and I'm asking God to help me with this. But, you know, I'm really having trouble believing because I don't really see him doing anything. You know, I, I don't really feel a whole lot of comfort here. But here's the thing. If God is disciplining you, we don't pray our way out of discipline. We repent our way out of discipline. The comfort comes when repentance comes, not before it comes because God is not going to encourage us in our sin. So I want you to understand the limits on this promise. If we're suffering for the name of Jesus, God says, I'm with you. I'm going to comfort you. If if he's putting us through a trial to grow us as we seek him, he's going to comfort us. If we're suffering because of our sin, if we're under the chastening, disciplining hand of God, God says, you repent. And then that's when comfort is going to come. Remember, I told you earlier in the series, it is important to, to try to understand at times why we're going through trials because the reason we're going through trials affects how we need to respond in order to get through and to get out of that trial. Let me illustrate that for you. Uh, let's talk about spanking for a minute, okay? Um, now, you know, my kids are pretty much, maybe Lily every once in a while, she's seven, but my kids are pretty much, you know, beyond the, the spanking age. Um, you know, Jay's 17, Molly's almost 14. Um, you know, they're just not good at that age. But, you know, I'm a big proponent of spanking because it's biblical. 
And it works if you do it right. Um, you know, God has wired children where something in their rear end, you know, activates something in their brain, and there's just some kind of connection that he's put between those two things. And, you know, the Bible's real clear about that. The, the point of, of really any kind of discipline is, in, is in inflicting a small degree of pain now to keep them from greater pain later. That's the point. Not abusing them, not hurting them, but, you know, any kind of discipline. It's breaking their self-will so they don't think they can do whatever they want to do without any consequences. And, you know, you can discipline children with uh, things besides spanking, certainly, but, you know, the Bible specifically talks about that. And I'm sure all the teenagers, I'm just their favorite person right now, right, guys? But, uh, you know, when my kids were, were little, uh, well, you know, what I think when it comes to spanking is it's counterproductive if you just fly off the handle. Uh, kids are master manipulators, and when they make us mad, they always end up using that against us. You know, the, the part of the key to spanking well is, you know, just being calm, being under control, and I think having a certain way that you do it, because a lot of it is psychological, and really it should be more about, you know, them thinking about what's coming and why they're getting it, really, than even that you're actually, you know, hurting them when they do it. We always used a, a fly swatter, or almost always, um, except for really serious things because it, it stung but it, it couldn't actually hurt them and when jay was little he couldn't say fly swatter he called it fly swatter or something like that so uh but you know i don't know about other dads but i always found it harder to spank girls than to spank a boy almost always uh there there have probably been a few exceptions to that but um Jay, and I don't think most people, unless you know him pretty well, would really know this because he probably doesn't come across this way, but he's pretty stubborn and strong-willed. He was really that way when he was little, and hopefully we broke most of that out of him. But uh, So we would have some monumental battles of the will at times, and there were times when, uh, you know, I could, you know how it is sometimes with your kids. You just feel like stringing them up somewhere. And, and I could definitely, you know, feel that way with him at times, and you know, but really, I think it was like worse with my girls for me because I don't do real well with tears. And they would like cry. I mean, you know, Jay would be like bucking against you and that kind of thing. But like the girls, I mean, you know, they would cry before you even started talking about spanking them. Uh, and that just like, what are you, you're not supposed to cry yet. <laughs> it's not, we'll give you something to cry about, but you're not supposed to cry yet. And, um, you know, so that, that was kind of hard for me. And that just says something about me, I know, but, uh, um, but, you know, really when you, when you spank your, your kid, you know, the kind of the idea is, I mean, I would still spank them even though they cried because if you let your child out of a, some kind of discipline just because they cry, what you're teaching them because everything we do teaches them. What we're teaching them is that if they just act sorry enough, they can get out of things. Well, sooner or later, that's not going to go well for them. You know, sooner or later, they're going to run into a police officer or somebody that's not going to buy that. Because once again, you know, discipline's breaking their self-will. So, you know, you can't let them out of it just because they cry. But once they have really kind of come to the place where it seems like they're really sorry 
and, and, and they're broken and those kind of things. Because really, you know, the discipline's not over until that rebellion has ended. As long as they're bucking up against you, it's not done. And see, the thing about that, as long as you're consistent with that, pretty soon they get the message because they're not stupid. But they're very smart and they're very manipulative and they will push us as far as they will, you know, as they know we'll go. So it's kind of like, you know, my kids are a little bit older now, but, you know, like when they're three, if you, uh, if they know that you will say something 16 times before you get serious about doing something about it, they will do it 15 times. But if they know you mean business on the first time, pretty soon that message is going to sink in. Um, but, you know, after the spanking, one of the things I always thought was very important was to hug your kid, tell them you love them, encourage them, uh, comfort them. And I just say all that to say that I believe that's how God works. Once God spanks us, when we really repent, he wants to comfort us. But he's not going to do it before then because he doesn't want to reinforce that. It's too smart to do that. So my point is, if we're being spanked, so to speak, because of our sin, the only way to get away from that and to really experience the comfort of God is to repent. But if we persist in our rebellion... God is going to persist in his discipline. So why are we suffering? Why are we in a trial? If we're suffering for Jesus, if God's putting us through something to mature us, we can go to him as our father, hold out our arms and let him comfort us, let him minister to us. If we're in that trial because we're running from him and we're rebelling against him and you know we're going away from him, realize he's not going to comfort us until we come back to him. I mean, think about the book of Jonah. Jonah kept going down, 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 down until he came to the place of repentance. That's what happens with us as well. Fourth aspect of this, and this is very practical, and that's the process. I mean, you say, okay, this sounds good that God uh, comforts us, and I would like his comfort, but, you know, it's, it's not like Jesus is sitting in the chair next to me. I mean, let's kind of be practical with this. How is this really, truly, actually going to work out in my life? Well, I think the Bible teaches us that that there are three particular specific ways that God comforts us. (laughs) They're having fun. Um, You should be that loud in here. I mean, come on. Um, He comforts us personally. He comforts us personally. Now, the word that's translated comfort or comforts or some form of that in these verses is the Greek word paraclete. And it it literally means to to come alongside. Now, you say, well, why is that important? Well, I want you to look at a a different scripture. Haley put it up on the screen. It's John chapter 14, starting in verse 15. And remember the context. This is in the middle of some of Jesus' final teaching before he goes to the cross. And, and, and his disciples, you know, he's talking about he's going back to the Father and all these kind of things. And, and the disciples are freaking out. They're like, 
you're going to leave us now? You know, how's this going to work out? What are we going to do? And so Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. He says, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper. And the word helper there is that Greek word paraclete. And some translations translate it helper, some translate it comforter, same word, basically, you know, same meaning, helper, comforter, one who comes alongside of you to be with you, help you, comfort you, strengthen you in the midst of your life, in the midst of difficulties of life, that he may abide with you forever. And who is this comforter, this helper? It's the spirit of truth. It's the Holy Spirit. Whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. He says, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Then look at verse 26, 27. It says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, bring to remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. How does God, the Father, personally minister his peace, his comfort, his encouragement, his help, his strength to us. It is through the Holy Spirit. I mean, think about it. What this is saying is that if you know Jesus Christ, if God is your Father, that you have a personal comforter, helper, helper, God himself living on the inside of you. That's pretty amazing. It's personal. He's with us. But you know what? I I think the most neglected power in the world today is the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, he is so important to our lives. And I think we spend so much time trying to do things on our own instead of living in dependence upon him. I mean, if you're a Christian... And, 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 and you're going through something. Listen, the Spirit's there. He's the Spirit of truth. If you're going through something because of your sin, the Holy Spirit's going to be convicting you of that sin. Say, make it right. Repent. If somebody's sinning against you, the Holy Spirit's going to be there speaking to you, saying, forgive him, forgive her. God's been gracious to you. Be gracious to them. Don't be bitter Don't let this ruin your life. Don't let this control your life. Don't let this dominate your life. If if you're in a trial because God's trying to mature you, the Holy Spirit's going to, he's the spirit who gives love and peace and joy. He's going to be there to encourage you and say, God's working. He's got a good plan. He's got a good purpose. Hang on. Be faithful. He's working all this out. He's going to see you through this. If we're suffering for the name of Jesus Christ, I believe the Holy Spirit's going to be there saying, think about what Jesus did. Consider Jesus. Think about how he suffered for you. The Holy Spirit ministers to us in our trials. And and the thing about it's this. Honestly, I'm trying to explain the unexplainable. Because the Bible says in the book of Philippians that God gives us a peace that passes all understanding. And if you've experienced it, you know exactly what I'm talking about, and you can say amen to it. You can say praise God for it. If you don't know 
what I'm talking about. I really can't make you understand it. All I can say is trust Jesus. Go to your Heavenly Father and let the Holy Spirit work in you. And He'll give you peace. He'll give you comfort. He'll help you. He'll strengthen you. And then you'll know what I'm talking about. I mean, God lives on the inside of us. He's with us. He's for us. I mean, that is amazing. He understands things that are going on in our lives. He understands things about us that we don't have a clue about. So he comforts us personally. He comforts us through prayer. You know, I think verse 11 is an amazing verse. You also helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. In other words, what Paul's saying is he's saying, not only praise God, he's saying to the people he's writing to, thank you because God delivered us through your prayers. It ought to encourage us to pray for other people. It ought to encourage us when we feel like our prayers aren't being answered, that God's listening and God's working. I don't know how all this works. I cannot explain prayer intellectually because I don't understand it intellectually. All I know that is that a sovereign God has chosen to work through the prayers of his people. And what happens in prayer, I love the way John MacArthur puts it. He says in prayer, man's, man's impotence meets God's omnipotence, meaning God who has all power works in situations by his mighty power that we're powerless to do anything about. It ought to encourage us to pray. But the third way that God comforts us is God comforts us through other people. Look, look at chapter 7 in 2 Corinthians, verse 6. Paul says, Nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. You ever experienced the comfort of God through another person? You ever experienced that? I have. You know, I think about when Robin's mom had an aneurysm and she died. All the people that were there for us. I think about their their family's deacon from Manly Baptist Church in particular, who, I mean, I don't even remember just the hours and hours. And I mean, I think he may have even the first night, if he didn't stay all night, spent most of the night with that family. You know, I think about when my brother died, which was 10 years ago last week. I mean, I, I remember, you know, when we got the phone call, and I guess, uh, you know, some of it's kind of a blur, but I guess Robin called people. You know, we were in Maryland. That happened here. I remember people that came to our house that were there with us that night. I remember people, you know, that drove from different states to come here uh, for the funeral. I remember people when Molly had her heart surgery who were at the hospital with us and, and people in, in dozens of states that were praying for us. There were people who came to the hospital and when Molly had a seizure last month. And I could go on and on with example after example. And, and, and I'm not saying that just those people being there made everything okay and, and, and it just, you know, it just erased all the difficulty or it erased all the emotions or it erased all the hurt and, and all the pain. What I can say is it did help. Because it's bad to suffer. It's horrible to suffer alone. 
Would you say amen to that? It's bad to suffer. It's horrible to suffer alone. And you know what? The Bible says that the church is the body of Christ. And so really what that means is we're his mouthpiece. We're his hands and his feet. We're really being, in a sense, and I mean, don't take this too far. I'm going to what I'm saying. But we're, in a sense, being Jesus to people. We're kind of putting flesh and bones to God and being a tangible representative of God in people's lives. When we go in the name of Jesus to comfort them and minister to them. And, And you see, that brings me to the second half of this equation that I'm going to spend about five minutes on, so don't get worried. It's like, you know, each part of this is going to be that long. But the the second part of this, God comforts us so that we will then be a comfort to other people. Look again at verse 4. He says, who comforts us in all our tribulation. Why? That we may be able to. And that phrase in in the Greek, what it expresses is it expresses purpose. You could translate it for the purpose of us comforting those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. God comforts us for the purpose of us being a comfort to other people. Let me ask you something. Are you going through a hard time? Would you rather talk to somebody whose life has been easy, a bed of roses, or somebody who's been through some stuff. You'd rather talk to somebody that's suffered some, right? And you know what's even better? If somebody's been through the same kind of thing that we're going through. Somebody who has some understanding. Somebody who can empathize with us. And really, that's what he's saying in, 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 in this verse. He's saying, don't waste a trial. Your trial will become part of your ministry. Do you see that? If if you've lost a loved one and God's comforted you, God wants you then to turn around and minister that comfort to someone that you know when they lose a loved one. If you've battled a health issue and God's comforted you in the midst of that, then he wants you to share that comfort with other people when they're going through the same kind of thing. If you've had a a, a problem, a struggle with a child, then you can share that comfort that God's given you with somebody else in a similar situation or a financial problem, whatever it may be. Our trial is part of our ministry. Every Christian's a minister. And you say, sometimes people say, well, you know, how do I know what my ministry is supposed to be? What are you passionate about? What kind of spiritual gifts has God given you? What kind of natural talents do you have? And then what kind of life experiences, including your trials, have you been through? That's what shows you what your ministry is. Listen, God never called us to be reservoirs. He always called us to be channels. He didn't call us to hoard his blessings, his comfort. He calls us to share it with other people. He wants us to be like a sponge that, that he, he fills up, but then it gets wrung out as we minister to other people. 
Scripture tells us we're to bear one another's burdens. We're to serve one another with love. We're to speak words of comfort to each other. That we're to care for each other by rejoicing with those who rejoice, by weeping with those who weep. Weep. That's what it means to be the body of Christ. And, and part of being the church is being ministers of comfort and encouragement to each other. Listen to me. Sometimes people think, you know, if you, if you need some kind of ministry, you need some kind of pastoral care, you know, find a pastor, find a counselor, something like that. Let me just tell you, there are a lot of people and a lot of situations that you will be more qualified to me than me to minister to somebody in. Because you've experienced something, you've gone through something, God's brought you through something that I haven't been through. You have an empathy, you have an understanding, you have a level of compassion that I don't have. All of us are ministers, and part of our ministry is the trials that God's brought us through. It's part of the way that God works good, even in bad. So, the point hope it's in our heads. We have a Father who comforts us in our trials for the purpose of us then comforting other people. Now, the key is to not just be in our heads, but to work it out in our lives. How do we do that? Let me just give you some quick suggestions. One, if you're not a Christian, trust Jesus, repent of your sins, Place your faith in Him because God being your Father and being your Comforter and giving you mercy and grace is conditioned upon you having a relationship with Jesus Christ, His Son. That's the starting point. We deserve judgment. God wants to give us mercy, but we have to trust Christ. Two, praise God. Remember what he said, blessed be, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise him for being good to us. Praise him for his comfort. Praise him for his mercy. Praise him for his blessing. Praise him for the gift of his son. Because one of the most powerful, and I believe one of the most comforting things we can ever do, is just simply to worship God for who he is. Three, seek him for comfort instead of other things. You know, sometimes we go looking for comfort in all the wrong places. Why do sometimes people end up getting addicted to drugs, alcohol, whatever, just, you know, fill in the blank, whatever it may be. They're looking for comfort. Trying to fill a hole, soothe the pain. Of course, the only problem with that kind of thing is when you come down off the high, the problem's still there. It's probably worse, and you're hurting worse than you were before. God's a father of mercies, the God of all comfort. He's there for us. Pray for people, and then minister to people, encourage people in the midst of their trials. You know people who are going through something. Reach out to them. Pray for them. Encourage them. Something we, we put in the bulletin is some, some people at True Life that are going through some kind of trial. Shirley Hale, going cancer treatments. Linda Moyers and uh, Caroline Ballinger just uh, had 
brain surgery. Wayne Beeler's had a lot of health problems. Barbara Wilder's battling cancer. Roger Brock is a friend of Warren's who's just been in the hospital. Just a, and it doesn't have to be these people. You know people, but we just thought we'd give you a real simple, practical way to apply this. Their addresses are on here. Just send them a note, a little note of encouragement. Just say, we're praying for you. We're thinking about you. We love you. We care about you. We stand with you as a church family. Something like that. There's people here. We, we tried to use people that we knew that wouldn't be here, but there are people here this morning going through some kind of trial. If you know them, minister to them, encourage them in, in some way. 